It was now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. For the sun stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. When all the people who had gathered to witness this sight saw what took place, they beat their breasts and went away. But all those who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. Now there was a man named Joseph, a member of the council, a good and upright man, who had not consented to their decision and action. He came from the Judean town of Arimathea, and he he himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body. Then he took it down, wrapped it in linen cloth, and placed it in a tomb cut in the rock, one in which no one had yet been laid. It was preparation day, and the Sabbath was about to begin. The women who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed Joseph and saw the tomb and how his body was laid in it. Then they went home and prepared spices and perfumes, but they rested on the Sabbath in obedience to the commandment. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be unto God. You may be seated. We've lived here now in Crozet for about three and a half years. And it's safe to say that most every day that I've been in Crozet, I have come to the church building. Not 100%, but almost close to that. Particularly, I've come to the education wing, which is right across the breezeway. I've come there most every day I've been in Crozet. And if you have ever been over there, you know the layout of the the building. So as soon as you walk in, there's a bathroom immediately to the right. Then there's the kids' nursery. And then there's the, the children's room. Then down the hall, there's the secretary's office. Then there's my study. Then there's another bathroom. And then there's a little alcove over here. Not rocket science. Some of y'all have seen that before. Now, a couple months ago, Darlene told me that the fire extinguisher guy needed to service the extinguishers on the property and just make sure they were up to code and all that kind of stuff. And I was the one who led him around the property and opened up the doors. And, and before he came, I was wondering and thought to myself, where are the fire extinguishers in this church? Kind of be, probably be a good thing to know. So when we came into the education wing, again, I was wondering, where, where is this thing at? And the thing is, it, it's hanging in a very bold, very um, noticeable way, right between Darlene's office and my study, right there in the middle. And it's about eye level, again, right here. Again, I've walked in that building three, three and a half years, over hundreds of times, okay, easily. And I've never seen that thing in my life. And it's right there. Right, I, it's just mind-blowing. I was, I was astounded by it. And I, was, I was expressing it to this guy. I was like, I have no idea this thing was right there. And he, and he said, all the places I go, nobody ever sees these things. It can be as blatant. And now y'all are going to be looking for them around the church. But that's a good thing. It's okay if you, it's good for us to know where they are. But I never saw it, even though it came within my line of sight. Like, technically, I saw it, right? But in the same sense, I also did not see it. So, brothers and sisters, as you and I are barreling towards the end of the Gospel of Luke, I remind you of a very simple message, that Jesus is right here in front of us. He is plainly right in front of us, and of course we know, not physically, But plainly through the text, through the word, he is right in front of us. 
Anybody can see that. A, tr- a child, an older person, a non-believer, a Christian, anybody can see that Jesus is right there in the text, particularly that Jesus is on the cross. People can see that to a degree. But, just as a young child can walk in that building over there and see the fire extinguisher, in their eyes, to, to an unlearned child, they might just see a big, shiny red object. They don't understand the significance of it. They don't understand how to use it, what the purpose of it is. They just see something hanging on the wall. And for you and I today, though you might see Christ, I ask you, what do you see when you see Christ? What do you look at, specific question up there, what do you see in the sufferings of Jesus? What do you see in the cross? Why do I say that in the first place? Well, verses 47 to 49, you may have noticed, look for repeated phrases, repeated ideas. Verses 47 to 49, three different occasions, the phrase or the idea of seeing Jesus is repeated there, three different times, describing three different people, the centurion, the crowd, and then the women from Galilee. You notice in the text, so for example, the centurion seeing what had happened. And then verse 48, when all the people who had gathered to witness this sight saw what took place. Then verse 49, all those who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. I think there's an overwhelming emphasis in the text that the key is on seeing Christ clearly in these final moments of his life. So for you and I today, what do you see in the sufferings of Jesus? Or in other words, what does his death mean? How does his death affect us? What do you see in the sufferings of Jesus when you look at him? Well, to help guide our thoughts, to help us get a better answer, we're going to walk through the text and ask and answer a few more specific questions so that we might see Jesus more clearly. From verse 44, the question is, do you see the creation groaning at his death? This is from verse 44. It was about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon, for the sun stopped shining. The three of the four Gospels include this little detail, so Matthew, Mark, and Luke include that the land, the whole land, went completely dark, or sometimes they say the sun's light failed, or the sun stopped shining. Why do they include this little detail in the Gospel accounts? Multiple ways you could answer that, but I think one of the big ones, I I think there's kind of three ways to understand it. Number one, this is a powerful reminder that Jesus' death is not just a merely human event. This isn't just something that happened to a man, a mere human being. Jesus' death was cosmic in nature. It had ramifications that affected the whole universe, the whole earth, because this wasn't just a man, this was the man who created the earth. This was the man who created the sun. This was the man who created the universe. And it's as if, as one commentator said, when the sun's light was failing, it describes the sympathy of nature with the sufferings of the Son of God. But in addition to that, when you see in the text, it was about noon and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon for the sun stopped shining. The, the Greek word there that's used for darkness is the same word that's used in John chapter 3, verse 19. And in that verse, Jesus is speaking and he's saying, basically, people love the darkness because they love being in their sin. 
So in other words, in that context, it's referring to the spiritual darkness, the spiritual wickedness. Here, it's physical darkness. But the physical darkness is representative of the spiritual depravity that is assaulting the very Son of God. And then lastly, what's significant about about this? Typically in Scripture, whenever you read about the earth or the sun going black or things becoming dark, what is that connected with? The judgment of God. Think about the Exodus when everything went black and then soon thereafter the angel of the Lord came and slaughtered the firstborn of the Egyptians, of the, those who did not have the blood over their doorpost. Several times, and actually Jesus spoke of it earlier in Luke 21, when Jesus was speaking about the end, one of the signs of the end is the sun failing to shine, the stars falling. And we also see that language used again in the book of Revelation. And it's also fascinating in Amos chapter 8, verse 9. Amos is a prophet. He's declaring God's word, and basically he's talking about how God's judgment is ripening. It's growing. It's getting to the boiling point, and God is going to soon pour it out. The fruit is going to be ready for Israel because God's people had become extremely wicked. Listen to the specific prophecy that's made here that I believe Jesus is fulfilling in fullness in Luke 23. Amos 8, verse 9, In that day, declares the Sovereign Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. And that's clearly the language used there. It was now about noon and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. So brothers and sisters, when you see Christ on the cross, do you see that the judgment of God came upon him? Do you see that the creation had gloom upon its face at the sufferings of the Messiah? Do you see that? The next question we ask from verse 45. Do you see that when Jesus died, he did so to bring you to the Father? Verse 45. The curtain of the temple was torn in two. Matthew chapter 27 verse 51 provides a little more specificity for us. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now what does that mean? What are we talking about? The curtain, the temple. Well, back in Exodus chapter 26, the Lord gave instructions to make and install a royal curtain that would serve as a barrier between the secular and the sacred, between the common and between the holy. For it was in the curtain, it was within this veil that God resided, that his presence resided. Because in the curtain resided only one object, and that was the Ark of the Covenant. You might be from, or the Ark of the Tabernacle, depending upon how you um, dub it. This is where God's presence resided, where God would commune with his people, where God would cleanse his people. And what's significant about it is the high priest could only go into that, the Holy of Holies, it was called. They could only go past that curtain on one day. The Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, which if you know your Christian calendar, the Jewish calendar, that is actually today, believe it or not. So the the high priest could only go in there once a year, according to God's terms, with the proper sacrifices. You cannot stroll into there willy-nilly, however you feel like it, whenever you feel like it, 
You have to go and commune with God on His terms, on His timetable. This is very important to keep in mind. So when Jesus died, the curtain was ripped apart, was torn in two like somebody would tear a piece of paper. And it was divine because it was from top to bottom. And when you interpret Scripture with Scripture, particularly when you look at Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 20, the meaning of this can be understood. Jesus died to bring us to the Father. Jesus died to bring us to the Father. Listen to Hebrews 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, because Jesus is that ultimate sacrifice, Jesus is that perfect Lamb of God, that innocent Lamb that was slain, that covered over, that atoned over our sins. So now, since we have confidence to enter this most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is, His body, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, what should we do now? Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience, having our bodies washed with pure water. So brothers and sisters, when you see Christ on the cross, Him being battered, do you see the truth of 1 Peter 3.18? For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to what? You know the rest of that verse? To bring you to God. Christ suffered on the cross to bring you to the Father. Do you see that in His sufferings? And you might be wondering, well, what's so great about the Father's presence? What's so important? What's so beneficial about that? Well, I remind you of a beautiful verse, Psalm 16, verse 11. That in the Father's presence, there is fullness of joy, and at His right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is the God whom we serve. This is the God whom we long to be with. Do you see that He died to bring you to the Father? Verse 46. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When He had said this, He breathed His last. From that one verse, do you see Jesus' unshakable trust in the Father? Do you see Jesus' unshakable trust in His Father? Now you might see in your Bible, there might be a little footnote, and it says that Jesus is quoting Psalm chapter 31, verse 5. Pretty much verbatim. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Though, I will mention, I mean, if you want to turn there, feel free. Actually, please turn there. Psalm 31. I want you to see it with your own eyes. Psalm 31.5, Jesus does change it slightly because he inserts one extra word. Somebody see it? What's different between Psalm 31.5 and Psalm, or in Luke 23, verse 46? What was it? Father. There it is. Jesus inserts the word Father there because in His most intimate moment, He called out to His own personal Father. Now, it's fascinating that when Jesus 
if you will, is being squeezed out like an orange, when he is being put under pressure on the cross, and just in life in general, through his life, what comes out of his mouth? Scripture. The Word of God. You may recall another occasion in which this happened was from Luke chapter 4, when Jesus was in the wilderness, being tempted by Satan. When he was crushed, when he was being beaten by Satan in the wilderness, being tempted, what spewed out of his mouth? Scripture. The Word of God. Particularly, he was quoting the Psalms quite often. That was one of the books Jesus quoted most often. So, in Psalm 31, though, I want you to look at it for a moment. You see in verses 1 to 5, in the whole opening verses, David begins, so David is the author, the original author. He begins with a, a prayer of deliverance. So several times David utters, deliver me, God. Save me. Come to my rescue. But then, in verses 9 to 13, David describes the desolate state that he is in. And listen to this, and listen to how this foreshadows Jesus on the cross. So David utters, Psalm 31, verse 9, Be merciful to me, Lord, for I am in distress. My eyes grow weak with sorrow, my soul and body with grief. My life is consumed by anguish and my years by groaning. My strength fails because of my affliction and my bones grow weak. Because of all my enemies, I am the utter contempt of my neighbors and an object of dread to my closest friends. Those who see me on the street flee from me. Does that not describe our Savior in his final moments of his life? I am forgotten as though I were dead. I've become like broken pottery, for I hear many whispering terror on every side. They conspire against me and plot to take my life. To use the verbiage of another psalm, David himself walked through the valley of the shadow of death. And in a much more exponential way, this describes our Lord and Savior. For Jesus is the only one in the world who experienced utter God-forsakenness. The terror of God-forsakenness. Because you recall from the other Gospels, Matthew and Mark, what does Jesus utter? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which Jesus is yet again quoting the book of Psalms. What I want to point out to you is that though Jesus was crushed, he still trusted in his Father. Into your hands I commit my spirit, is what the text says. Into your hand, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Though Jesus himself was bludgeoned to death with the club of hell, he still trusted in his Father. Though Jesus is the one who drank the poisonous, bitter cup of darkness, he still trusted in his Father. Though Jesus was brutally assaulted unjustly, he still trusted in his Father. This reminds me of that beautiful quote. I believe Spurgeon said it. I could be wrong, but you may have heard it. It's when you cannot see the Father's hand, you can trust his heart. This is undoubtedly the truth that is just flooding the soul of Christ. He doesn't see the mercy of the Father. He doesn't see the love of the Father here. He sees the wrath 
the, the animosity that God has towards sin, he sees all of that being pummeled upon him. And though he did not see his father's hand, what did he do? He trusted in his father's heart. This is both good news for you and I because this is Jesus' faithfulness on our behalf. Yet at the same time, as 1 Peter 2 talks about, Christ suffered as an example for us. So yes, he is a substitutionary atonement. Yes, he is a, a sacrifice in our place. He lived the perfect life on our behalf. He was perfect where we failed. Yet at the same time, Jesus did live this perfect life so that you and I could emulate him. So that when you and I face dark valleys, we likewise can trust in our Father though we may not see the goodness immediately right around us. Do you see that in our Savior? Do you see that Christ trusted in His Father? The last thing I'll say is verse 47. The last question. Because of time. Do you see the Lord working in the outsider? Do you see the Lord working in the outsider? Verse 47. The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. Other versions might say, surely this man was innocent, depending upon your translation. Matthew 27, verse 54, records the centurion as saying, surely this man was the Son of God. And we have to back up a little bit. What is a centurion? Well, think through the word just briefly. So centurion was in charge of 100 soldiers. Centurion was a commander in the Roman army, a principal officer, Again, in charge of a hundred soldiers underneath him. Lest we forget, the centurion was a Gentile, was a pagan. Or to state it in our vernacular, perhaps, this man did not grow up in the church. He did not hear the Bible as a teenager or as a child. His religion was to advance and to grow and to gain in the ranks of the Roman army. This is what he devoted his life to. And to use the language found in Ephesians chapter 2, this centurion, this man, was a foreigner to the covenants of the promise. This man was without hope and without God in the world. And some commentators and scholars think that this centurion perhaps was the very one who was in charge of putting Jesus to death. He was the one commanding the 100 soldiers who were overseeing this whole crucifixion. But yet, as this man observed what was taking place, his heart softened. The Lord was doing a work in him. His heart softened, his mind was opened, and his eyes could clearly see that this was not a guilty criminal. This was an innocent man. This was a righteous man. But more than that, as Matthew records, as he also uttered there, Jesus is the Son of God. He is the one who came from God. Jesus is God himself. And Luke's inclusion of this centurion's declaration here, of this man's faith in God, because he praised God and declared with his mouth the truth, right? Jesus is Lord. He is the righteous man. He is the Son of God. This is a reminder to you and I that in Jesus' final dying breath, God's heart goes out to the outsider. God's heart goes out to the Gentile. And what is a Gentile? It's anybody who's not a Jew. 
So it's you and me. It's anybody who is not a Jew. And this is a subtle recurring theme in the Gospel of Luke. As we wrap up, I'm going to try to do some little refreshers, point you back to things we've gone over to tie this whole book together. But in Luke chapter 2, verse 32, you may recall that there are two individuals, Simeon and Anna. They're older individuals, and the Bible describes them as having this earnest desire to see the Messiah. That's something they just eagerly longed to see. They were anticipating to see the Messiah with their own eyes. Luke 2, verse 32, Simeon sees him, meets him, Jesus as an infant, and he says, My eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. Luke chapter 7, we read about another centurion, another Roman soldier, another godless man who had faith in Christ. And Jesus uses this man, highlights this man, as a model of faith yet again, because where Jesus was ministering, the Jewish people he was ministering to, they rejected him. They didn't believe in him. But Jesus was saying, I found more faith in this pagan, if you will, than my own people have trusted in me. Pretty much every time a centurion is mentioned in the Bible, they're done so in a high manner, as a model of faith in our Savior. So brothers and sisters, as Jesus breathed his last breath, do you see that he cares for the least of these? That he cares for the outsider, for the godless, the pagan, the Gentile, those who did not have a good upbringing. He cares for all of us. And as you see in the text clearly, I could ask you several more questions. From verse 48, do you see this man and does your heart fill with sorrow? as was the crowd. Verse 49, Do you see his sufferings and follow him anyway? As the women of Galilee did. They didn't just follow Jesus in the good times, they followed him to the end. Verses 50-54, to Do you see that what came upon Jesus was injustice? As Joseph of Arimathea did. Right? Verse 51, He had not consented to their decision and action. Do you see in verses 55 to 56 that in Jesus' burial, this was a strong confirmation that this was a real man who had a real body. This wasn't just a spirit or some force or some ghost. This was a real man who physically lived and physically died. Do you see that in the text? Church, I ask you yet again, what do you see in the sufferings of Jesus? Anybody can see Jesus on the cross. But what do you see in his death? Do you see what that means for your life? We sang about it overwhelmingly this morning. Just going back and forth with Chris Irwin about the songs for today because this is all about the cross. Do you see what the cross means for you? I hope that you do. I hope that you see that in his death, the creation groaned. In his death, access to the Father was opened up. In his death, our, our Lord and Savior had an unshakable faith in the Father. In his death, his heart reached out to the lost and to the lowly, the undeserving and the unworthy. This is the Christ whom we serve. Let us rejoice in him and be glad in him. Our Father, 
We thank you for your word that you've spoken to us. We thank you that though we are weak, you are strong. Though we are blind, you give us sight. Though we are hopeless, you give us hope. Though we scramble around in the dark, you shine light on our path. Though we are filled with hatred and anger, you meet us in your love and grace. Though we are rebels, constantly run away from you, you continue to pursue us with your love and with your mercy. Our Father, we thank you that all of this is possible and all of this was demonstrated through the coming of your Son, through the perfect life that he lived in which we rejoice over, through the gruesome death that he died on our behalf. And Father, as we look towards next week, the anticipation, we can have fellowship with you because of his resurrection from the dead. Please help us to understand what this means. Give us the right knowledge. More than that, help us to have the right actions in our lives. Help us to live out the truth, to live in such a way in which we cherish your grace. And Father, perhaps most importantly, do a work inside of our hearts. Change our affections, change our heart, change our mind. Help us to not only know you, help us to love you. And then, by the power of your Spirit, help us to live for your glory, for the good of others and for the glory of your Son. And it's in his precious name that we pray and commit these things to you. Amen.